thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of Ask the Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Matt Jamison. Um, now, here we are. Our first question this evening comes in from Janina. Um, her daughter wants to know, how was the internet first devised and how did it come about? Well, it's, it's very interesting because there's a guy who's actually giving a talk in London and some people have suggested that uh, a knighthood is not enough for this person. This person, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, mm. was made a knight of the realm because he wrote the code that became hypertext markup language, HTML, which is effectively the language that gives the internet its architecture. It's the ability to show text on a page and then turn some of that text or some of the graphics on that page into links and then click on those links and they take you to another set of information. And he actually wrote that not that long ago. It's within the last 20 years or so. And he initially did it so that at CERN, which is obviously the big particle accelerator facility, physicists could share information and share data and use the connectivity of computers to effectively communicate better. And, of course, it was immediately realised that this could be an amazing tool for the whole world, in fact. And, of course, it was that one invention that he actually wrote at Christmas time um, about 25 years ago, and that became the Internet. And it's just, of course, exploded. And I can remember, well, when I first went to university, it was the early 90s, so 1993, and uh, they were just getting going, giving students email addresses, and there was a few websites. And within five years, the whole thing had exploded. And I can just remember Google used to print on their front page indexing X number of billion pages. And I can remember when it was a few billion, and then it was eight billion, and then it just was crazy numbers of billions, and they just stopped giving the number anymore. Um, so the answer is that it was all down to Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He's giving a talk in London at the Science Museum either next week or the week afterwards. And uh, we've also got an article on the Naked Scientist website, which was actually written by a guy in America, and he titled it Once a Night is Not Enough. He's suggesting that Sir Tim Berners-Lee deserves the Nobel Prize for the internet um, because of its power to educate people, to distribute information. It's not just about porn and, and about sport. It's all about information and education, and the internet has been the most fabulous educational tool uh, that, that's ever existed. It's amazing. Good answer. To a very good question. A question about Jupiter from the website. Indeed, this is from Lee Knight, Matt. And, and what Lee says is, I've been watching a TV programme the other day. It was about Jupiter, and they described Jupiter as being a completely gaseous planet. In other words, there's no surface. Is this actually true? And the answer is yes, Jupiter is entirely made up of gas. That's why we call it a gas giant. It's about a 1,000 to maybe 1,300 times bigger than the Earth, so an absolutely massive planet, in fact, bordering on what would be called a brown dwarf. Because when bodies form in space, 
the size of those bodies determines how much gravity and therefore how much of a squeeze the centre of those bodies feel. And if they're sufficiently large, eventually there's a sufficiently big pressure at the centre squashing things together to ignite nuclear fusion. And so we talk about stars being fusion reactors driven by the force of their own sheer physical size squeezing them tightly together. If you get smaller and smaller stars, eventually there's not enough force there to squash them and they're considered to be a brown dwarf and this is where there is something which is not quite big enough to ignite fusion or maybe if it did get going it never really developed enough. And then there are other gas giants a bit smaller than that like Jupiter. They're pretty common and we know what's in them because you can look at the light that comes from Jupiter and the light has written into it a signature of the chemicals that are in that planet and what that tells us is that there's enormous amounts of hydrogen, there's some helium and there's some other things like ammonia and water in there. But because Jupiter is so big, a thousand plus times the size of the Earth, it's squeezed down at incredibly high density. So even though it's made of gas, you wouldn't be able to float through it like you would fly through a cloud. It would be like running into a very, very hard brick wall at a very high speed if you were to slam into Jupiter because it's absolutely enormous and therefore its gravity is huge. And so actually the, the thing it's made of is very compact. All the things you were describing there sounds like the sort of things I used to put together in chemistry classes at school. Is there a danger that this could explode at some point? Well, Jupiter? Yeah. Well... Thankfully, probably not, because it's been there for four and a half billion years, which is roughly how old our solar system is. In other solar systems, you get what are called hot Jupiters, and this is where resonances and instabilities in the orbits of the planets have led to these gas giants, which are traditionally formed fairly far out in the solar system. They've actually migrated in towards the star, uh, speeding up as they do so, and so they then end up whizzing round the parent star at very high temperatures, and that high temperature can help to boil off some of the gas which is in the gas giant, so they would eventually kind of lose a bit of mass because they're getting so hot, but they've got so much gravity on the other hand that they, they do tend to cling on to what they're made of very well, and that's why Jupiter has so much hydrogen, despite hydrogen being the lightest element in the universe and very light, very easy for it to escape from a planet, because Jupiter is so massive, its gravity is so huge, that it actually pulls the hydrogen towards itself very, very hard, so it clings onto its gas very well. You're listening to Dr. Chris from The Naked Scientists. Got a bit of a Chinese whispers one here for you, Dr. Chris. Um, I'm not sure whether you, you, you like these or not, but John Lipswich says he reads that the government put £25 million into phones being able to pick up keywords that could lead them to terrorists and such. Do you know any more about this and how it works? Actually, I, I don't know about that, but it would be not impossible to do in the sense that uh, if you think about it, when I, well, when many of us make phone calls these days, we talk to an automated voice answering system that says, uh, which department would you like me to put you through to? Say it now. Or which person do you wish to talk to? And it listens to what you say and then it offers a best guess. It says, you said you wanted a three-bedroom flat in... <laughs> You know what I'm. You know the program I'm referring to. Uh, <laughs> yes. Sometimes they get it wrong, uh, but voice recognition is getting better and better and better. There's now some amazing software where you can wear a headset while you're at work and operate your computer, type letters and things, and it's all done by voice recognition. It's very good for disabled people as well. So. I don't think it would be impossible to monitor phone conversations in that way, but the problem is that these words would have to be extremely unique and specific, and probably to the extent that the, the system would become 
insufficiently sensitive or specific because people, at the end of the day, if they're nefarious and they're going to do something nasty, they're hardly likely to talk about it in open terms that the government knows to listen out for. They're probably going to use code words and other things. So I don't think that's probably the most sensible way to, to go about it. I, I mean, I'm not an expert on espionage or weeding out spies or terrorists, um, but I think there are probably better ways that you can do this, actually. Well, I'm an expert on data protection, and I know that uh, if that, that was the case, that you could be recording uh, things and conversations going between people, eventually, according to the Data Protection Act of 1998, you are entitled to get transcripts of those conversations. So that could make it absolutely impossible, couldn't it, to uh, to use that as a method of, of detecting uh, potential terrorists, I guess. Well, I think all these things bear a rider, which is that uh, that's all very well unless it's in the national interest not to disclose this information. Yeah. And therefore, I think that if there was that going on, it would be suppressed for that reason. But which I don't is- know. Um, now, here we are. We're going to test your periodic table live on the air. You ready for this? Oh, go on then. <laughs> uh, this comes in from Tad in Cambridge on the email. I was wondering if Dr Chris might be able to tell us more about the new element on the periodic table, which I think is number 122, and might be named Copernicium, after Nicholas Copernicius. Uh, maybe actually, It probably won't be on the periodic table yet, because it, although scientists can claim to invent these elements... They're not actually accessioned to the periodic table until IUPAC, which is the international organisation that recognises, is the physical and applied, is the organisation for the physical and applied chemists. But they are the organisation that acknowledges the existence of elements. So scientists can make them, but then they have to have it independently verified that they've made a new element. Um, the most recent addition to the periodic table is element number 112, which as yet hasn't been named, or it may have just got its name, but it was going by the temporary name Ananbium, because un, un, b- and by is 112 in Latin, and it was sort of joke. Uh, oh. And so they called it Ananbium. They only had ever made about two or three atoms of this stuff, and the half-life of those atoms was a fraction of a second, a few milliseconds at most. It was made by researchers um, in two places, one at Ricken in... in um, Japan and also uh, in Germany and what they were doing to make these elements was to use a particle accelerator and you fire atoms of of one variety into atoms of another variety and hope that if you give them enough energy the repulsion between the nucleus of one atom, the positive bit, the heavy bit, and the nucleus of the second atom will be overcome and the two nuclei will fuse together and you'll get a new atom species because you'll get a new atomic number because the two things will add together and usually you end up with something unstable because only certain configurations of nuclei mixtures of protons and neutrons are actually stable and if they're unstable they very quickly break down radioactively and they spit out some particles and turn into a more stable nucleus a different chemical again Um, so ununbium was acknowledged to exist And admittedly, it doesn't hang around for very long. But why this is important is that researchers think that beyond these numbers, at the moment, periodic table and number 112, there will be elements which are very, very massive, supermassive elements, which might have so-called islands of stability. In other words, there may be very big nuclei which haven't yet been invented, 
which, if we can get to them, will be a whole new element with lots of exciting new properties that are just waiting to be unlocked. And to get there, we need some stepping stones. We need to make some other things, like ununbium, for example, which you make it, it doesn't last very long, but while you've got it, you add another nucleus onto it and get an even bigger nucleus, and eventually you get to these very big supermassive elements which are stable. And uh, who knows what their chemical properties may be. Um, but that's basically why it's important. Okay, we've got George in Skegness on the line. Good evening, George. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you. You're through to Dr Chris. What's your question for him? Hello, Dr Chris. Uh, it's just to do with uh, light bulbs, really. Uh, in the bathroom, we have these you know, little allergen bulbs that's come out the ceiling. Uh, at the moment, the ones we've got are 50 watt, and about six or so in, in the room. Uh, they come from a little transformer, you know, which knocks the 240 volts down to 12. Uh, and the transformer is rated at 50 watts. So if I get a you know, smaller wattage bulb to go in there to sort of save electric, or even uh, LED bulbs, what's they have now, the spotlights, uh, still having that transformer, which is 50 watt, will I save an electric, or will it still burn the 50 watt, you know, when it's cutting down to the 12 yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, and you raise an important point, which is that power in equals power out. Yeah. So... In order to run a 50-watt light bulb, that means that because power, P, equals V volts times I, the, the current, 50 at 12 volts means that there is a current of f about 4 amps running through the cable. Yeah. If you put a lower energy light bulb on there, then you will obviously have a different resistance through the bulb filament and you will draw less current and you will actually therefore draw less power from your transformer. But the transformer won't actually uh, be ha still be spitting out 50 watts. That's the capacity of your transformer. That's the safe working load of your transformer. Oh, oh, the transformer will only deliver power at the rate at which you draw it up to the point at which it maxes out. In your case, you're saying it's a 50-watt transformer. What you could do, for example, say you, with your uh, mini halogen lights, what you might see in some people's kitchens and things, they have this exciting, almost like an electricity distribution network in the ceiling where it's cables with the halogen lights dangling between the two cables and the light bulbs are all rigged up in parallel. Um, every time you add another light bulb, you're effectively drawing more power from the transformer. So you just have to tot up how much power you're pulling out and make sure it doesn't exceed the rated capacity of the transformer and then yeah. you'll be fine. Sounds a bit wasteful. Might yeah. be better to, to get a, a 12 volt transformer with a higher capacity. For example, if you look at my computer, this is putting out a 12 volt rail and a 5 volt rail, but it's a 3 or 4, I think it's a 500 watt. Um, power supply. Now that doesn't mean that my computer's always using 500 watts but it means that I can connect peripherals and accessories and put big computer chips in which will use up to 500 watts and the transformer will be happy. So what you could do is buy a bigger transformer which is say 250 watts or, or whatever and then as long as you don't connect bulbs that are adding up together to more than that when connected in parallel it'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, just make sure the cable just make sure the cable can take it. Yeah, just, I think that Power consumption thing, you know, you said the, the watts times the voltage. Yeah, um, well, the way it works, power, yeah. it, P, is the wattage, and you can calculate that by times in the voltage by the current. So P equals VI. VI, oh. yeah, yeah. 
what in the, that's the volts times the wattage. Yes, so yeah. power is... No, no, not wattage. Power is watts, and yeah. you that's equal to V volts times I, which is the current. And that's the reason right. it works is voltage is a measure of the number of joules, how much energy, is coming out per coulomb, and a coulomb is a unit of charge, and current is the number of coulombs per second. So if you times joules per coulomb by coulombs per second, the two coulomb bits cancel and you get joules per second, which is power. Watts. Thanks for calling. Uh, George in Skegness there with his question. Another question on the way. Uh, We keep launching satellites into space. Is there an optimum place that they want to put them? What do we do with the thousands of satellites that are zooming around the Earth? And how do we stop them crashing into each other? Over to you, Dr. Chris. Yeah, well, this is a very good question and a very important question. There's several ways to get satellites to go around the Earth. Anything that orbits the Earth is a satellite. The Moon is, in fact, a satellite. It's the biggest natural satellite, non-man-made. But when we put a satellite up into orbit, what's effectively happening is we're giving the satellite energy so it travels around the Earth and it's being pulled all the time by the Earth's gravity. And if you've got something that's moving and it's experiencing a constant force inwards, then it will move in a circle, which is why these things go round. Now, because the Earth is a ball in space, there's two ways in which things could go round it. They could go round the, the planet's waist, almost like uh, the, following the equator, so to speak, or they could go pole to pole. Now, if you think about it, if they're going round the equator, they will going, be going round over land all the time, and they'll be going round roughly over the same bit of land all the time. They could go round pole to pole, though, and if they go north pole to south pole, this means the planet will turn inside the orbit of the satellite, and therefore the satellite will see a different part of the Earth's surface all the time. So those two things are very, very useful, depending upon what you want your satellite to do. So when scientists send, say, a probe, a satellite, to go into orbit around a distant planet, and we want to survey the surface of the planet, if you go in a polar orbit, for example, then the planet turns underneath the uh, satellite, and you can scan the surface, and given enough time, you'll eventually build up a very accurate map of the whole surface of the planet. So that's a polar orbit, very, very useful in certain circumstances. Certain weather satellites, for example, use exactly that process. Then there's another kind of satellite, which is say, well, if I want to watch satellite TV and I don't care what time of the day it is, I want to be able to turn my television on and I want to be able to watch the sport at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, 5pm, whenever, you always need to be able to see the satellite that is delivering that sport to you. And that means the satellite has to stay in the same place relative to the Earth's surface all the time. And this is a very special kind of orbit, which is called a geostationary or geosynchronous orbit. And this is special because you can't just put satellites into a geostationary orbit at any height above the Earth. There's a magic distance, which is 35,000 kilometres, about 25,000 miles or so, above the Earth's surface, at which the satellite is going at just the right speed to establish a stable configuration and position relative to the Earth's surface and stay there. And that's necessary if people pointing their satellite dishes at that satellite are to get a constant contact with that satellite. Now, because that distance is so magical, and obviously there's only so much space up there, the more you put up into space, the more crowded that space is going to get. And it's getting pretty crowded. Recent estimates are that there are hundreds of thousands of bits of junk floating around up there from leftover spacecraft, from debris, things that have blown up, and, of course, all the satellites that are going round. These satellites are going round at thousands of miles an hour, 14,000, 18,000 kilometres an hour, some of them. 
And at these kind of speeds, if they hit even a speck of dust, the damage to them will be devastating. So we have to be very, very careful how we keep it clean up there and only put things up there that we can either retrieve by having them in a decaying orbit or have fuel on them so that they can fire themselves to a safe position so they will then go into a decaying orbit. What that means is that they lose energy and they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere and remove themselves from the equation. But it is getting crowded up there. Excellent. Kia in Norwich has been on. She says, why does a digital radio have such a huge transformer in comparison to old radio sets? Well, probably we know that digital radios do involve a lot more processing. Old radio sets, all they had to do was decode analogue signals. And what an analogue signal is, is you have a radio wave, a wiggly wave coming in the form of, it's effectively a form of light, and the radio audio signal has been applied to that radio wave and the wave basically uh, changes its frequency a little tiny bit to reflect what the sound is that's being put into the microphone in the studio, say. Well, digital radio is a lot different. What you do is take the audio that's going into a microphone, you take that signal and you convert it into a digital signal, which is a series of noughts and ones, binary, and you transmit this series of noughts and ones using a special code so, in other words, the machine that makes the digital signal has a code and it says, right, when, when the wave is this high, I use this code. When it's this high, I use this code and so on. Transmits the code. The digital radio has a decoder which has that code book, looks at the signal coming in and says, right, well, when I see this series of noughts and ones, that corresponds to a wave which is that high and this high and so, and so on. And it has to rebuild the analogue wave from the digital signal. And that takes a lot of processing. And that's why there's, a, a, a very big delay with digital radio compared to analogue radio, which is much faster, because it's basically sound waves come out of radio waves and that's it. Um, and also it's more energy hungry because you've got to do a bit of computer processing to, to turn out the audio signal. The benefit of digital, of course, is that if you can pick it up, then you will get pristine signal pretty much because if it's, if it's receivable, then it's decodable and there won't be any deterioration in the signal as you get towards the edge of the broadcast radius. It'll either work or it won't work at all. <laughs> Good stuff. Really nice question from Mark Gallagher, who okay. says, what's the, what's the weight of the Earth? How much does Earth weigh? Well, strictly speaking, we should be talking in terms of mass rather than weight, because weight is a function of mass when gravity acts on it. So the mass of the Earth is 6 followed by 24 zeros in kilograms. So to put that into something more reasonable, it's 6 times 10 to the 21 tonnes, because there's 1,000 kilos uh, in a ton, and, and that would be about uh, a million, 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 so a thousand million, million, million tons. So the Earth is pretty heavy. Uh, really nice question from Madeline Decker. She's nine, and she says, "Why do fingers go wrinkly if you stay in the bath too long?" And the reason for this is that skin on the fingers and toes is very, very thick because we are doing things constantly with our fingers and toes, rubbing them on surfaces washing up and so on, and so you have thicker skin there to protect you. Because you have thicker skin, that skin's actually, the surface layers are dead. They're fully what are called cornified and keratinized cells. So they're squashed, flat, dead, dried-out cells. And they're there like a, a, a protective surface. But because they're dried out and flattened, they're also a bit like blotting paper because the protection against water that the skin offers isn't perfect. And as a result, when you immerse skin for a very long time, where it's thickest, on the fingers and toes, you get water leaching into those surface layers of the epithelium, the protective surface, and the water soaks into the cells and begins to make them blow up or swell up. Now, 
It's a bit like railway tracks or road sections on a hot day. They expand because they've got more in them than they had before uh, and these cells begin to run into each other or buckle up. And so the only way that they can fit together is by throwing up folds which is a way of creating a bit more space to pack in the cells that are now bigger than they were before because they're stuffed with water. And so that's where you get the wrinkles. And then when you come out of the bath and you effectively dry out again, that water leaches out of the skin back into the atmosphere, largely because it's warm and you're warm. Uh, As a result, the, the, the wrinkles go away, thank God. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can send The Naked Scientists your questions by email. Chris at thenakedscientists.com is the address to write to. And if you want to find out more about The Naked Scientists, then drop by our website, nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 